Merry Christmas. And indeed, jingle all the way. This is indeed the seasonal edition of Jaffa Cakes for Proust. I am Gary. Joining me is... And you're all bouncy and happy because it's your favourite time of the year, is it not? Yes, I'm just slightly under the weather and blowing my nose a lot. My blood has thinned from living in California for so long. Well, you're not in California today, are you? Because you're here with myself and Television Centre, yet we're in our makeshift comedy flat. We've got our sort of Gary and Tony, Mark and Jez vibe going on. I thought this would be the perfect place for us to do the Christmas show. It's only got three walls, and the other missing wall is letting in the cold and letting out the heat. You can't have everything at Christmas, can you? Hang on a minute, where's my phone? I'm going to give Nolan Propane a call. (laughs) I like this atmosphere. Okay, it is a bit odd with the empty studio audience and there not being any lights. You should grow a beard like me. They're nature's reflection filter. Your voice is bouncing off the walls, mine isn't. This isn't Sitcom Club, of course. We all know that. We know what happened to Sitcom Club in 2016. It's a crying shame. I'm more upset about Lady Beard leaving Lady Baby. The point is that in 2017, in some form or another, Sitcom Club will be back. In Dropbox, there's a shared folder shared between Gary and myself. And in that folder, there is a list called Unfinished Business. And it's a list of the sitcoms we definitely said we were definitely doing and never did. So that's our first order of business. Don't put in requests. Don't ask us to do things because we have things that never got done and we need to get round to. What are we doing here today? It's not going to be sitcoms, obviously, because it's not sitcom club. What we've done is we asked all of our regular contributors to send us a little Christmas message. And this is in written form this time. Bit of a sort of old-fashioned vibe. Nice sort of retro feel. Good old Telegram-style communications. Would you believe it? This is more than just coincidence. Everybody who sent us a nice little Christmas message, they all started talking about their memories of pantomimes in the Christmas card. So what we thought we'd do is we'd have a panto-themed Jaffa Geeks, and that's what we're doing today. So the first thing I'm going to ask yourself, Till, is do you actually recall the last time that you saw a pantomime in the United Kingdom? Ah, Aha, I anticipated what you were going to say. Save that, f- what you were going to say for later on. But in the UK, do you remember the last time you were seen one? No, that this is a really shocking thing for me to confess. I've never seen Billy Pierce in pantomime, which might sound like, well, what's a big deal about that? I'm from Bradford, and in Bradford, pantomime means Billy Pierce. It's shall we talk about that now? Yeah, go on then. Let me bring up the list of Bradford pantomimes. Fantastic site called its-behind-you.com. The last pantomime I saw would have been Robinson Crusoe in 1991 with David Essex. A couple of years later, it was Cinderella with Paul Nicholas. Got the whole river thing going. And Billy Pierce was in the cast. This is actually interesting. That clashes with my memory. Okay. So Billy Pierce was in the cast. It must have been the following year that Billy Pierce was headlining. And I do remember a few people going around saying, have you seen who's headlining the Panto this year? Billy Pierce. Where did he get him up from? Is that the best we can do? And then the Panto opened. And within a few days of the Panto opening, have you heard about Billy Pierce? He is absolutely knocking them dead. He's just got them in the palm of his hand and never seen anything like it. It's terrible that I've never actually got around to seeing him. So one of these days, I'll have to come back and hope that he's still doing it. 
but it's the Bradford version of Germans and David Hasselhoff. Bradfordians love Billy Pierce, and I think Billy Pierce possibly loves us all back. I was very fortunate enough to see some of the great pantomime stars of Scotland when I was growing up. I saw Ricky Fulton in Panto. I saw Jack Mulroy. I saw Walter Carr. Andy Cameron. Andy Cameron was reading out the football results and not just reading them out, but he actually managed to, to integrate them into the script on the Saturday afternoon, which was incredible. In latter years, Gerard Kelly, unfortunately I never saw him in pantomime, but he became a big, big attraction as far as the panto was concerned in Glasgow and unfortunately passed away a few years ago. Nowadays, you tend to get people such as Cowan Barr and Des Clark appearing in a lot of pantos. And this year, rather nicely, we've got as the Ugly Sisters the pairing of Gregor Fisher and Tony Roper, who people may remember from Rapsi Nesbitt as Rapsi and Jamesy. I think it depends on what part of the country you grew up as to which particular people you associate with pantomime. And we'll talk a little bit later about pantomime on television, which is an odd sort of area to go into because televisions try to tap into pantomime over the years with mixed results, I suppose you would say. But we'll talk about that a little bit later. But why don't we open up our first little Christmas card? Birdie. You just recently heard on the changes. Hello, Birdie. Perf. Would you like this um, chocolate bar, by the way? I've got out my selection box. Now, now that's, that's it's, it's a white bar and it's got some sort of coloured lettering and it's quite long. And I think Terry Scott maybe used to advertise it. What is it called? Oh, a curly worldy. Anyway, Birdie's not only sent us her memories of Panto, but she's also sent us her Panto rules. So we're going to start with this and we're going to sort of use this as our template. Now, you may agree, you may disagree with these, but here they are anyway. Birdie writes, there are only two Panto stories, Cinderella, the best, and Aladdin, second best. Babes in the Wood, not a pantomime. Snow White, not a pantomime. Cinderella meets Aladdin. What are you, a monster? Aladdin... Did somebody do that? Apparently. Next rule. Aladdin is set in China. Cinderella is played by a girl. Prince Charming is also played by a girl. Now, have you ever seen a pantomime where you had the principal boy not being played by a woman? Because that always seemed to be standard, as far as I remember. I'll wait until you get to the end of this, and then we'll start talking about the rules and how the rules have changed, and whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. Body has anticipated some concerns that yourselves may have about her very strict rule that there were only two panto stories. So she adds... First of all, what about Jack and the Beanstalk? Yes, but only if there is A, a dancing cow, and B, if the giant is played by someone with the stature of Charlie, my boomerang won't come back, Drake. I'm just going to pause the panto rules there for just a moment. Tilt, tell us about Charlie Drake. You know what? I think this may have come up before. You know when we did that Green Bird experiment last week <laughs> and we're talking about movies, games and videos and I thought people are reciting this along with us. Do you really want to hear me talk about Charlie Drake again? Hang on a second. Boys and girls, do we want to hear him talk about Charlie Drake again? Yes! Go on then. One horrible thing looking at this list of Bradford Pantos is how badly my memory gets scrambled. After all, I invoke the law of quantum leap. In certain things, it's not holding together. I saw Charlie Drake in Panto in 1989, or possibly early 1990, in Cinderella. With Jim Davidson, Jess Conrad, Charlie Drake, and Hilary O'Neill. And in my memory, Ian Botham. It turns out Ian Botham was the following year. So I've seen Jim Davidson and not really 
registered it. All I remembered was Charlie Drake. Couple of things. One, Charlie Drake comes on, walks up to the front of the stage. There's probably a theatrical term for it. I don't know. Upstage. And goes, hello, my darlings. That's my impression. Nothing. He's obviously expecting a round of applause. And he just says, that, that's what I say. And then you say it back. So he went, hello, my darlings. And the audience, the music, hello, my darlings. So that kind of put a slight damper on the atmosphere. The other memory is that he sang a song about fish. Did you send me a clip to Cinderella with an S, the adult pantomime with Jim Davidson that effectively had the same cast as I saw in that grand old theatre? And there comes a bit when Charlie Drake picks up a fish and sings, and I'm putting gaps between the words because we don't have an explicit tag on Jaffa Cakes. What a wonderful fish are souls. And I saw this and I thought, I've seen this before and I've seen this in person. I've seen Charlie Drake only a few feet away from me singing this. I swear Charlie Drake sang that song in Panto, in Bradford, in front of children. I invoke the law of quantum leap. <laughs> if you want to talk about principal boys... Because when I was thinking back to memories of pantomime, there was definitely a period in my life when panto was two different things. For whatever reason, as myself or as a chaperone, I would see the professional production at the Alhambra Theatre. And then chances are I would see an amateur production. I mean, one thing was my dad used to do a bit of stage management for Amdram companies. So I would see a village hall production at the same time. And that would be the one with the girl principal boy. By the time I'm seeing professional productions, the principal boy is a famous man. So that had already gone, unless anybody knows any different. But like Jack and the Beanstalk, Max Boyce was Jack. And we'll talk more about him later. Maybe Sue Pollard was playing Aladdin, but I don't actually think I saw that one. Hang on, are we doing, not getting confused between two different things? Brody's talking about if you've got like a Prince Charming figure, that's played by a girl. A principal boy, yes. But to me, that was something that still existed in amateur productions. Village Hall Panto, Principal Boy, is still a woman. Professional productions, by the end of the 80s, into the 90s, and maybe starting before then, the central male role was played by a man. I'd already seen it start to decay. It was really only in the smaller end that the Principal Boy still existed. And I'd be curious to know what productions are happening in the UK in this year of Grace 2016 that still have a female principal boy. Returning to Buddy's rules. The only proper dames are A, the Ugly Sisters, and B, Widow Twanky. The others, i.e. Shuri of Nottingham, are made up. Dames must be played by men, and she emphasises this in capital letters, and played by men who are unequivocally men. Widow Twanky is played by Les Dawson, not Lily Savage. Danny LaRue, no, really, brackets, or Eddie Izzard. Oh, you're a glamour model and you want to do Panto and Skegness? Well, you can play the fairy godmother. But a sexy genie? Get in grave. So there you have it. There's Birdie's Panto rules. Now, is there anything you want to take issue there with at all? Till. I think damehood is a broad church. My personal preference is for the dame who is a bloke who's not even trying. But I'm perfectly willing to accept that out there there are dames who are somewhere else on that spectrum from masculinity to femininity. 
I'm presuming that Danny LaRue did play the dame at some point, but the problem is that he would have wanted to then throw off the costume at the end and put on his dinner jacket and start singing a song. Why not? You get Danny LaRue, you get Danny LaRue's rules. And to play fair to Danny LaRue, if he is playing the dame, he might glam up, but it was an important part of Danny LaRue's act for the mask to keep dropping. The whole thing of, watch your mates. It might come up later, but there's that 1982 documentary about Panto, narrated by Victoria Wood. And Arthur Askey is insistent that the dame be a man who is a manly man just in a dress. Billy Dainty is a little bit more, well, this is what works for me, but it's okay. I've tried to explain the dame to Americans. Well, what once happened was, uh, my dad once played, not twice actually, played pantomime dame. The second time, he had a full beard and didn't bother to shave it off. That's exactly how it should be done. That's, that's exactly according to Brody's rule. Yeah, well, I've seen Bill Oddie uh, interviewed on TVAM. He was playing a dame somewhere and he kept his beard. The first time my dad played pantomime dame, he didn't have the beard yet. I have a picture and I once showed it to somebody and said it was my mum. And then had to quickly explain that it was my dad. And then I had to I said one of the ideas behind the pantomime dame is what if your mum started acting like your dad? Instead of being responsible and nurturing, <laughs> they were just more... I'm not saying everybody's mum's like that or everybody's dad's like that, but that's the faint idea. I've tried to do some research into the history of pantomime, and it seems there's lots of just jumps. Every article I read said, oh, uh, Comedia dell'arte and panto. So it's been difficult for me, but I mean, the dame, I think, has its roots in the time before women were allowed to play women on stage. Women were allowed on stage at all. This is something that was touched on in Upstart Crow, isn't it? Yes. After the restoration is when we get women allowed on stage, and that strangely gives birth to the principal boy, because we have breaches roles. Initially in restoration theatre, it is stories about women pretending to be men, but it means that we get to see their legs. Somehow <laughs> that crosses over with, by the time Panto happens, women are just playing the male lead. Even after women were allowed on stage, for a long time, certain roles were still being played by men, and that's why I say Juliet's nurse. So you can look at that part of the history. So we have this peculiar... This is why it's so difficult to explain to somebody who hasn't got the background. Sometimes a man plays a woman because men used to always play women, but then when women were allowed, then women sometimes played men, and that happens in Panto as well. Maybe this is why I keep getting these leaps whenever I try and read anything about the history of pantomime. Because nobody's actually managed to work out how we get from here to here. Let me just clarify, because when you're saying there about explaining to somebody who doesn't already know, I think that all of us, including all of our contributors, I think we all know the rules of panto. So when you're saying that, are you talking about explaining panto to largely Americans, for example? Yes. We might come back to that at some point later on. But the only thing that I would take issue with, with Birdie, is that I agree. Yeah, I like the idea that you'd have, say, Donald Hewlett with pipe and moustache playing a panto dame. But, unfortunately, never got to see him in person. But, as I understand it, I think John Inman was regarded as one of the great panto dames in the UK. And I wouldn't necessarily say that he fits the Les Dawson mold. I think he's more in common with Danny LaRue. Actually, though, John Inman... Wasn't he famous for his Frank Randall impressions? So John Inman had it within him to play the boisterous, no femininity 
Dame. I don't know if he ever did. I imagine what he did was he fluctuated. On stage in front of children as well, fluctuating everywhere. And that was probably very effective. He would use his... I don't mean this word judgmentally. He used his effeminacy. And would then, when you were used to it, throw it away and do something Frank Randlish. Have you ever seen Stanley Baxter? I never did see Stanley Baxter in Panto or in person, no, unfortunately. But isn't he legendary Oh yes, up there? yes, yes, indeed. As Dame, and yet when Stanley Baxter's playing a woman in his specials, he goes all the way, he goes on the full femininity thing. So we can point to one very successful feminine Dame. Well, what's your own preference? I'm inclined to agree with Bordy on this. I think that the Jeff Capes had played Dame. That'd be perfect. But yeah, I suspect there'll be certain performers who are able to bend rather than break the rules if they can get away with it. So we've got another Christmas card here. I'll give this one to yourself, Till. This one is from our good friend, Boggins Trovia. Rob, how are you doing? In about 1987, I went to see Aladdin at the King's Theatre Southsea. And I was all excited because I was going to see Brian Kent as Wishy Washy and I'd only seen him on the television before. Plus Lorraine Chase was coming back to the theatre after several years performing pantos in other theatres. So when Brian Kent asked for people to join him on stage, my hand went straight up and I was one of the chosen few to do so. Bearing in mind, the King's Theatre looked like the London Palladium in size to the young me. We all had to tell jokes and I told an old chestnut about a newspaper being black, white and red all over. Feeling the cock of the walk, I return to my seat to watch the rest of the panto. So later on, when Aladdin finds the magic lamp in the cave and Lorraine Chase picked it up and said, What shall I do, children? I yelled out so that the whole theatre could hear me, Rub the lamp! Which put her off and out of character. And she said, Oh, I think I'll try that in the familiar Luton Airport voice. Safe to say, there were a few looks of, Where did that come from? What the p- was that after my outburst? Safe to say, I never shouted at a panto again. That's my claim to fame, and it's little wonder that Laurentius didn't come back to the King's Theatre in panto for at least 20 years. Now, do you have any recollection of doing that yourself, Till, or any of your group that you were chaperoning? I, mean, I was oh, never, no. I was never oh, the kind of no, kid who was ever going to... I would have dreaded f- being brought up on stage. Well, thank you very much indeed, Rob, for that, and a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to yourself. Have you noticed how parochial this makes us? How wonderfully parochial this makes us? When we're talking about recalling pantomime, we're talking about the towns we lived in and grew up in. It never occurred to me what a nice thing that is, I mean, for me to think so deeply about the Alhambra Theatre. Of course, in the mid-80s, the Alhambra closed for its £8 million restoration. And the only thing I remember was that the Bradford Catholic Players put on a show in the Library Theatre called Follow the Star, which was, and I can almost see Birdie turning purple as the blood pressure rises at this very thought, a nativity pantomime. We were all given little fluffy snowballs to throw at a particular point. There was lots of audience participation. There was an angel called Chicago who basically acted like a Runyon-esque gangster. The angel Gabriel was called Gabby and was, Hello, boys and girls, I'm Gabby! Right, where do you stand on audience participation? It's necessary for Panto. I'm probably the one sitting just like, oh, please, please, I just don't want to do this. But if everybody in the auditorium was me, then it would be a horrible time for the actors. You see, okay, let me rephrase that. I don't mean, obviously, it's a pantomime, there's going to be audience participation. Of course there is. You know, he's behind you, all that kind of stuff. What I mean is the actors themselves actually getting in amongst the audience. Where do you stand on that kind of thing? 
I don't think I've ever seen that in a panto. For me, audience participation is the dame throw suite, which I imagine doesn't happen anymore. And while I'm not somebody to complain about health and safety, I can understand why. Just maybe, the, let's try and find a way around that. There must be a suite that it's safe to throw. You're not serious. That they can't throw sweets anymore. Are you, no, I'm just assuming. I'm just assuming that the way things have developed, it's not the kind of thing you're going to get. Not just because of health and safety rules, complaining like men on a TV forum, but also because lawyers, uh, flee. Maybe that's the thing holding back Panto in the US. Okay, next Christmas card. This is from G, G Baker. And she writes, I have to admit that I am probably, as usual, a bit different to others in the fact that I can count the number of times I've been to a Panto in one hand and still have three fingers. I don't think Panto was my parents' thing as we never went as kids and therefore I've never really been that interested. The first recollection I have of watching a pantomime is seeing Dick Whittington, whose all-star cast included Les Dennis and his wife at the time, Amanda Holden. I can't tell you much about it as I must have been only about four, but I do remember the Choco Brothers being in it and they were hilarious. I went with my dad's work and I remember another girl who was sat with me just rolling in the aisles as we both found Batty and Paul funny. Incidentally, I think this performance took place at the Lyceum in Sheffield, one of my favourite theatres. The venue was small and intimate, and that seemed to play a great part in the laughs. Being a typical child, the part that sticks out in my mind was the Chuckle Brothers throwing sweets into the audience, hey! and I seemed to have caught quite a lot. I don't think I saw a pantomime again until I was about 11. Went to the Buxton Opera House to see Cinderella. Sorry, I can't remember the cast. And many of the pupils in my year were trying to refuse to go as we thought pantos were boring and childish. I remember organising for all of us to sneak Walkmans into the theatre and listen to the radio instead. But when we got to the theatre, I gave it a try and actually found myself enjoying it. I had my rebel years, prematurely, and with my older taste in telly, got all the innuendos and rude adult bits. So there you go, rude adult bits and pantomimes, so maybe your memory of Charlie Drake is correct. There you go. G says, I was actually embarrassed by how much I kicked off about not wanting to go. It was, it was great. My old favourite panto performance was a school trip a week after Cinderella. If I remember rightly, it was just an Amjam performance of Jack and the Beanstalk, with some performers at one of the local community halls, and a shamed soap star. That was the best panto I've ever seen, as it didn't rely on the cheesy and somewhat cringy references to the star's fading glory. The last panto I saw was maybe five or six years ago. Again, it was Sleeping Beauty at Sheffield Lyceum with my younger siblings and cousins, though we were all too old to be going out on our own. The tickets were only booked because at the time my mum was doing Corey's Beverly Callard's fitness DVD, so it was meant to be a family outing. That was until Beverly Callard got ill and Margie Clark stood in as the Wicked Queen slash witch. Instead, my siblings and cousins and I went. While I am a Liz McDonald fan and much preferred her to Miss Clark and Corey, I think the role was made for Clark. She was brilliant. Her performance, humour, stage presence and line delivery made the show, and she outshadowed Mr. Tumble, or whoever the CBB star was as well as Sheffield's resident pantomime dame, Damien Williams. I spent a majority of my time in Sheffield, and each year they seemed to stick to the same means of finding their cast, by ringing up Coronation Street and CBBs. Clearly a winning formula, as there was a famous face for the kids, and for the older ones. I'm not one who associates pantos with Christmas, mainly because I haven't been to many, and despite enjoying the ones I've seen, I don't seem to have a very positive attitude towards them. I am the first to admit that I'm a theatre snob, which may be why. It's a shame, really, as everyone seems to make it into a tradition, and there are some great names and performers alike and would love to see on stage. The trouble is, they all seem to congregate in places like London, Cardiff, Manchester and Birmingham. Everybody's talking about pop music. Sorry, I had to do that. You listed some cities. Do go on. 
places I'm not willing to travel to just for a silly panto. Like the real theatre, this causes frustration for someone who considers themselves cultured. Well, thank you very much indeed, G, and a Merry Christmas to yourself. I can imagine Margie Clark as the Wicked Queen slash Witch. Yeah, I can see that. But very good to hear that even in, in the late 90s they were still throwing sweets, and I hope that's still the case now. I think that would be a tragedy if that's lost. I mean, for goodness sake, celebrations, right? The little wrapped up Mars bars, what, they're not heavy. Milky Ways, I mean, come on. You can't do any damage with those. Those flying saucers full of sherbet. Yes. <laughs> I think that the Choco Brothers would be absolutely phenomenal in Panto. I think that... I remember hearing once about they were doing a summer show that was based upon Star Wars. And do you know what? You'd love it, wouldn't you? I mean, if you were there on holiday, if you were there, I don't know, Blackpool or whatever, and you just went to that for an evening, you'd have a great time, wouldn't you? There's some interesting stuff, I think, to be said about the Chuckle Brothers. I think they loom larger than people might think. Maybe our metropolitan elite media has not realised just how big the Chuckle Brothers are in the rest of the country. This is actually something that I was thinking of earlier on before we started recording, because on the show we did about the All-Star Comedy Carnival, we were talking about the idea of regional presentation, for example. And it strikes me that I think this is possibly a television thing. I think this is probably something that's come about in the last, say, sort of 60, 70 years or so. The talent pool hasn't necessarily shrunk, but the number of people that you see on television these days it seems, in a way, it seems smaller. It seems as if we're seeing the same names spread across the schedules more often this Christmas. Certain people are turning up here and there and everywhere. And yet, at the same time, in local pantomimes and local amdram and so on, you're going to have really, really well-known people. Big, big draws. Like you're saying about Billy Pierce is unique to Bradford in terms of <laughs> panto. You see, when I saw Billy Dainty doing his striptease, big, big draws. Ah, now hang on. I see what you did there. Winter draws on. Now, you know that you're not supposed to say that because it's in the BBC handbook. His mother was frightened by a donkey. <laughs> so for G, some of the traditions we grew up with were already kind of gone. She doesn't really mention the female principal boy. When we get to talking about pantomime, there's often the, oh, you, no, they don't do that anymore. Oh, soap stars, blah, blah, blah. There's a Father Brown story called The Flying Stars. Was adapted for the recent BBC production, and as they do with Father Brown, they've made it complete nonsense. The story is a story of a Christmas crime committed by the great thief Flambeau, and of course, when the BBC adapted it, it was no longer set at Christmas, and the crime was not committed by Flambeau. Magnificent. One of the central things is there is a character in it complaining about how pantomime is not like it used to be. And when he's talking about pantomime, he is talking about something a bit closer to the Commedia dell'arte vision of pantomime. He says, I want to see a policeman made into sausages. He complains about how pantomimes are just fairy tales now and there's no Harlequin. So it's interesting how things just keep shifting. There was a time when the most important person in the pantomime was the clown. One thing I kept coming up looking at the history of pantomime was Grimaldi and how he had changed the stories that were coming and putting in a very powerful clown presence. I guess the clown in current pantomime is the Buttons character, the wishy-washy character. So if we talk to somebody a hundred years ago, two hundred years ago, their vision of pantomime would be radically different from ours. And our version that we cling to from our childhood would seem like it was a trashing of the great traditions. Pantomime is going to 
adapt and stay relevant to its audience. And when we were watching, it's going to sound like a strange comparison, but when we were watching Aladdin the other day. We were watching the 1966 performance of Aladdin, televised by BBC. It was Afraski and Roy Castle. And there are little gags in there about products and television programs of the day. You're going to get that in pantomimes. You're going to get jokes in 2016. There'll be jokes about Donald Trump. And there will be people in pantomimes who have been on Gogglebox, for example. And there'll be, if she's not doing a pantomime, then presumably Scarlet from I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here will be referenced in pantomimes and so on. And people will make references to Strictly and things like that because it's going to stay relevant. It's going to stay relevant to its audience. And I know that you really like the fact that there were references in that 66 panto which would have been completely alien to just about everybody in 2016, but you still like the idea that perhaps somewhere there was a pantomime that did exactly that. <laughs> yes. I quite like that idea. I would love to have seen... I'd, do you know what? I'd love to have seen a pantomime that was taking place at the time of the three-day week. That would have been fascinating. I think that would have been really, really good because almost certainly the time of the pantomime itself, as far as the evening performance, probably would have been changed, would have been brought forward, because the theatres wouldn't be allowed to stay open anywhere near their usual sort of closing time. Yeah, things like that, where there's like, people are talking about things, that of course they're going to be referenced in, in pantomimes in, in that particular year, and of course then you're going to have to junk all that material next year and what have you, but yeah, why have I not? I haven't got any problem with that at all. So, we have a Christmas message here from Tyler. Hello, Tyler. So Tyler says... I once appeared in an amateur performance of something loosely based on Cinderella, hello birdie, in which I played a sultan of sorts. Yeah, I know there was no sultan in Cinderella, but I guess they wanted to make use of the props and costumes at their disposal, and the year before it had been Aladdin. Plenty of curly-toed slippers and turbans. It was only a small part, really only a few lines. This was Banger North Wales in 1994, and as such there were no C-list or even D-list celebrities to put a few more bombs on seats, so audience attendance was modest. By modest, I mean dreadful. Having been roped into it by one of the players, a lady of pleasing appearance, on whom I was keen at the time, she was keen too, keen for me to replace the bloke who'd quit during rehearsals. I tried to make the best of it. From what I can remember, the Sultan and his retinue were intended as light relief and barely made an impact on the plot such as it was. I had a flunky who was clearly modelled on Baldrick from Blackadder, but without the gags or timing. Don't get me wrong, I was hardly Jacques Tetty myself. My one scene hardly featured me in it. Much of it was pound shop Baldrick fannying about with the ugly sisters, trotting out hoary old puns and tired one-liners of the shake, rattle and roll variety. You get the idea. On I come, resplendenting turquoise and gold robes, becoming immediately fatuated with one of the ugly sisters and try to make her my wife. Just on that point, without wishing to digress too much, I actually think that in the 50s Disney version of Cinderella, the darker-haired ugly sister isn't all that ugly. I'd go further, as much as a 40-something male can find animated characters attractive, I prefer her to Cinderella. <laughs> Stopping reading Tyler for the moment. I don't know if there's an entire podcast in it, but there really needs to be something said about characters in things. Women, let's make this a feminist issue, man. Women we're meant to think are not attractive, who are, at the very worst, fine. And in some cases, fine. Like, ugly means doesn't wear all that much makeup, and annoying means talkative. 
Back to Tyler. Hardly any specific dialogue comes to mind after over 20 years, although I do remember brandishing my fist under the chin of the hapless flunky and threatening to give him a knuckle sandwich, to which I think he replied, no thanks, I'd prefer a cheese one. Cue three people in a row of politely tittering behind their hands. See, it's things that he's just encouraging bad behaviour by politely tittering. <laughs> but it was polite tittering. That's the important point. Frankie Howard was enabling. Frankie Howard would have made that distinction. Frankie Howard would have pointed out the difference between tittering and polite tittering. Polite tittering is something you can do in polite society. That kind of joke needs an intervention. Anyway, everything else about the production is a foggy blur and I'm not 100% sure I stayed the entire course. Something tells me I didn't turn up one day close to the end of the run and nobody was really bothered. There's the nub of it. My role was so slight, so unrelated to the plot, my complete absence could easily pass unremarked. Doubtless my lackey took the opportunity for more shameless mugging to the 11 people who bothered to turn up. So there we have it. Perhaps had I persevered, the roles would have become meatier, more lines, more sizable audiences, tours, favourable notices, sharing dressing rooms with ex-Brookside actors, or even gas top! Nationwide exposure, eventual pantomime stardom at the Darren Day level, then telly, then films. Ah oh well. I don't think Darren Day ever actually got to the last rung in that ladder himself, so I wouldn't worry about it, Tyler. Well, the but last rung of that ladder is Billy Pierce. That's true. But thank you very much, Tyler, and happy holidays to yourself. Okay, this card's weird. This card's got grooves in it. Oh! And a hole in the middle. Oh, it's a flexi-disc, is it? Who, who sent us this? Because if this was sent to us by a gangster with Catholic guilt issues, I'm not sure I want to play it. No, no, don't be worried about that. Because even though we asked everybody for Christmas messages, Someone actually recorded his thoughts in a sort of stream of consciousness style, and that their person was Squiddy. So, can you pop the disc onto the Tommy My First Record player that I got in, I think, 1982? And I think the first record that I had was the reissue of Knock on Wood by Amy Stewart. And I also yeah, had while Wings. What wittering on about this? I have a Bang and Olufsen here. Wings of a Dove by Madness, I had that as well. That oh, Let's I, just clear I, this up. I'm still standing by Elton John, played that a lot. Thank you, Squiddy. So, a couple of memories uh, about pantomimes. First memories of pantomime uh, don't exist, because I was taking the pantomimes before I was too young to remember things. Living in central London was often taken by my parents as a babe in arms to the Palladium pantomime, which was a sort of fancier affair than the ones that go on around the regions, not anything at the time. And they had amazing casts. I think it was Babes in the Wood with Barbara Windsor, Tommy Trinder and Roy Kinnear. Incredible to think that I've seen Tommy Trinder live from the Great Age of Music Hall. I also saw when I was a little older, I think again it was Babes in the Wood, but Cannon and Ball were in it. And I was a big Cannon and Ball fan as a kid. Again, very little memory of it, but I do have a note, really childish handwriting from when I was five, maybe six saying, Mummy, please, can I go and see Cannon and Ball, love Johnny. And I believe I would have stopped seeing Pantos a few years later. My brother's a few years younger than I am. Uh, and we went to see, I think it was Aladdin with Frank Bruno. And I think maybe Barbara Winter was in that. I can't really remember. Frank Bruno's the genie. And I think that was the last Panto I saw as a child. And even then I was a bit too old for it because it was really for my brother. We tended not to go to many pantos in central London where I grew up because they happened around the regions, as I'm saying. There's that famous cliche that pantos are full of washed up soap stars and singers and, you know, Jess Conrad, and they never come to the centre of town. So we used to have the big one at the Palladium and that was around it. 
And they stopped doing them fairly early in the 80s. And they weren't really a necessity for children in central London because, uh, you know, we were spoiled. We had people like Ken Dodd and Russ Abbott and people doing shows that were family friendly. And we'd never go to the regions in the winter. We'd go in the summer for like Butlins and end up seeing Timmy Mallet or the Chuckle Brothers, but we'd never actually see a panto. So I sort of fell out of seeing pantos for a long, long time until less than a decade ago at a, at a private film club I go to, somebody had bought along a documentary from 1982, a BBC documentary about pantomime dames, hosted by Victoria Wood and interviews with people, Arthur Askey, John Inman, as a, as a memorable scene from Mother Goose with John Inman in drag, really <laughs> emoting. You can't, you can't, or you won't. It was just, uh, just a great thing to see. And that reminded me, oh yeah, panto, that's a thing. Because <laughs> it's always kind of a footnote in a British comedy histories, American comedy histories, never at all. They don't know what panto is. So all the pantos after I saw after this were as an adult, obviously. As I say, they weren't going on in central London, but they were going on in Wimbledon. And they were, again, a bit like the Palladium ones, slightly higher class affairs. You know, I go up to Bradford uh, generally once a year and I'll see these posters. And I'm always intrigued to see, because it'll be like the Bobby Davros or Jimmy Cricket or Cannon and Ball, or people I really thought were hilarious when I was a child. And these are people I, I've very rarely seen live because they don't play London. They're very unfashionable in London. Even Ken Dodd, even Ken Dodd very rarely plays London these days. So yeah, to see the likes of a Bobby Davro, you have to go up to Coventry or Leeds or wherever. Uh, and I'm not going to do that. And there's people I remember seeing were on in Leeds, like uh, Ray Allen and Lord Charles, I thought was hilarious when I was a kid, but I never got to see him live. Let's go back to London. The, the Wimbledon have started doing pantos in the last five, ten years. And as I was saying, they try and get a bigger name than the washed up Jess Conrad. They, get an, they try and get an, a washed up American. <laughs> so David Hasselhoff has done Peter Pan a times, playing Captain Hook, of course. Henry Winkler in, in the same role. The first one I saw, however, was... Oh, I can't remember. Isn't that terrible? I think it was Snow White. No, sorry, it was Cinderella. And the dame part, the widow twanky mother of the protagonist part, normally played by a, a man in drag. And then we get into debates about what counts as drag and what counts as female imitation. Because I think Arthur Askin, people like that, always used to say it wasn't drag. The gag is it's me a famous comedian in a wig and a dress. But anyway, that's beside the point. In this production, it actually was Barry Humphreys as Dame Edna Everidge playing Cinderella's aunt or whatever the hell it was. And I was dragged, oh, dragged, I was taken there by Bean is a Carrot, friend of the show, who uh, takes any opportunity to see Barry Humphreys or Dame Edna or Les Patterson. So we all went along and I had a great time. We, I think we all had a great time. Except for kids. Kids really hated the Dave Edna segment because they couldn't see that it was a man in drag. Because I think when someone like Roy Kinnear or, or John Inman, it's sort of obvious it's a man dressed as a woman. When it's Dame Edna, not, not so much. So she was doing interviewing housewives. She got a housewife stage and asked her about <laughs> asked where her house was. And what, what colour is your house? It's brick. Well, oh, what colour are the bricks? You know, desperate to get a reaction out of her. And you could hear kids getting bored. They didn't understand why two old ladies were nattering on stage. But of course, it's hilarious <laughs> for the adults. But that was the first panto I think I'd seen in a long, long time. And I was very impressed. 
there was a girl from Milkshake in it, who from the Channel 5 kids show Milkshake, who was very professional. There was an excellent 3D segment featuring, is his name Sammy? Sammy the Turtle? He's a turtle from the movies. But it was very impressive, and the kids loved it. And there were acrobatics and, you know, standard stuff. And me and a friend of mine were very impressed that one of the dwarves in it was the son of Rusty Goff. This uh, little person legacy going on in Panto. I think the next Panto I saw, also at Wimbledon, also had an American star. And that was, yeah, that was Snow White. And we went to see that because Priscilla Presley was the Wicked Queen. And my father is a huge Elvis Presley fan. So we had to go and see her. And we actually went on Elvis's birthday, January the 6th, of course, long after the Christmas period. So it was fairly empty. It was a very, as opposed to the, the one I went to the year before, a year or two before, it was very empty. People weren't joining in. And Jared Christmas, the comedian, was in it. And he was very sort of, come on, there's no point us doing this if you're not going to join in, trying to get everyone involved. But it was a sort of an uphill battle. But Priscilla Presley was pretty fantastic. She had some gags about Elvis and uh, you know how they always try and incorporate their previous career into these into these scripts she had a really clunky gag about sending the huntsman out to blockbuster video to pick up a naked gun box set a very it didn't even make sense I think blockbuster wasn't even going at that point but she did an absolutely knockout number of trouble if you're looking for trouble duh, 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 you come to the right place and it's kind of a real treat to see Priscilla Presley singing an Elvis Presley number on Presley's birthday. And I think that was kind of lost on the on the two dozen other people in the audience. What else? Oh, Warwick Davis was in that as well. And he's a performer I like a lot. Uh, he's, he's very good with an audience. Panto may be the best place for him. I, I think that might be the last Panto I saw, but I did go to a Radio 4 recording... Is it Radio 4? It was BBC Radio Midweek, the terrible <laughs> upper-class panel show that uh, nobody really likes. But I did went, go to this recording because it was a pantomime special, and I didn't know who the guests would be. And it turned out to be people who were in pantos that year. So Joe Brand was there, Clive Rowe was there, Danny LaRue's wig maker was there, and best of all, Henry Winkler. And it was very interesting to see Henry Winkler. Two reasons. I'll, I'll end on this. The, the first reason was he got really angry when Libby Purves asked him about jumping the shark because Libby Purves had misunderstood what jumping the shark meant. She thought it meant going over the top. So she said to Henry Winkler, you're very famous for jumping the shark, uh, just like Panto jumps the shark, you know, thinking it meant big and broad and over the top. What it actually means, of course, is rapid decrease in artistic quality. So Henry Winkler got very annoyed and angry and started saying, actually, when they talk about jumping the shark, that series afterwards got the best high viewing figures and etc, etc, etc. And Libby Pose didn't understand because she thought she'd been in, said something innocent, and then explained that she thought it meant getting broader. And Winkler realised and answered the question as it was intended. And if you ever listen to the broadcast, that whole section's gone. That whole ang angry bit has gone. It's a very odd cut. And at the end of it, Henry Winkler and Joe Brown threw sweets into the audience. Lovely little one. Anyway, my final, this is the final point, I promise. Henry Winkler tells this anecdote, and, I th and Priscilla Presley also told this anecdote, so it's kind of true of Americans, generally. <laughs> when they come over and do Panto, they don't know what Panto is. Panto has no, no history in the States. As, as, why should it? And if you ever go to the States and you talk about Panto and pantomime, they think you mean, you know, the famous Marcel Marceau, French-style mimes 
pretending to be in a glass box, white face and white gloves and everything. They have no concept of, of you know, the principal boy is a girl and the drag and the, and the pantomime horses. Actually, I just went to a pantomime horse race, judged by Lewis Schaefer, the comedian, the cheeky girls, the singing dentist and somebody who lost Big Brother. Anyway, it doesn't matter. That's just the, the last thing I went to. And Squeeze were there. That's why I went. Differed in Tilbrook. They were great. A very strange tribute to Andrew Sachs because they, they had an Italian pantomime horse come out and dance. And then a, a lady dressed as Manuel came out and sort of chased the horse around. And it was a deliberate tribute to Andrew Sachs. On the back, it had shared a picture of Andrew Sachs as an RIP. Anyway, no, Americans come over to Britain. Henry Winkler has this story. Priscilla Presley's story has this story. I believe David Hasselhoff has this story. I haven't asked. But they go on stage with the bad guy and people boo them instantly. And they, they're, they're so nervous and they get to the stage and they're booed and they don't know what's going on. They think, what, do these people hate me? They genuinely don't know that that's part of the panto language. You boo the villain. So you always go and see, if an American does panto, go and see them on the first night and you can see in their eyes. <laughs> You'll be able to see in their eyes the very real fear that they should have packed up and gone home. And if you are putting on an America, a British panto with an American, uh, don't tell them. Don't explain it. Anyway, those are my panto memories. Do I have any? I think I don't really have any more. If I do, <laughs> I'll let you know. Anyway, I hope... Oh, there is that big panto I, that's just happening right now at the uh, Palladium. The Palladium has decided to bring that pantomime. And again, it's a version of Cinderella with this all-star cast, like Nigel Havers, Julian Clary. Who else is in it? It's all sister massive ridiculous expensive thing the plot is massively expensive the set is massively expensive it's a multi-million dollar extravaganza and it's only on for a couple of weeks because it's panto uh and i was thinking of going to see that you know to recreate my panto at the palladium going youth but i think tickets are about 125 pounds so i'm not gonna go so that's the end of my panto going until panto gets very very cheap i might go in january there'll be cheap tickets anyway have a great christmas and new year and whatever the hell it is you're celebrating cheers fellas Thank you very much indeed for that, Squiddy. Have a very happy holiday yourself. And interesting there that Squiddy's talking about well, a couple of things. First of all, he makes mention earlier on about the Pantos at the Palladium. Now, I was down in London just a few weeks back and I saw adverts on the tube for the Palladium pantomime. And I see what he means because it's a cast of big names. Yeah, I suppose you'd be spoiled if you were used to that going to the Palladium each year because they can have a packed bill but at the same time i suppose that you're maybe less likely to get one particular person becoming the main performer in that area as you do in perhaps some of the regions the other thing of course was this business about americans appearing in panto now we've mentioned david hasselhoff from what i heard i think he went down pretty well last year here in panto with the crankies but is it a bit of a misnomer, this idea that the Americans don't do panto at all? I can believe that Americans don't really get panto, but the idea that there aren't any pantos at all in the States, I think this is something to, that you have first-hand experience of. There's a couple of things to talk about. Now, do you want to talk about panto that calls itself panto first, or panto that is panto but nobody really realises it's panto? On Facebook... There's an account called Lithgow Family Panto, and they put on pantomimes over here. And here in California, at the Pasadena Playhouse, they're showing Cinderella. I think it's called a Cinderella Christmas. Pardon me, boy. Is that the Pasadena Playhouse? <laughs> Track 29. Sorry, I just had to do that. I'll have a vodka and lime. Now, 
I'll need it. That particular pantomime, and it calls itself a pantomime, and the reason I'm not talking more confidently about this is, hey, Pasadena Playhouse, your site keeps crashing. This pop-up says something about Google Documents not loading properly, so I can't get the full details I need. It's running till January 8th, if you're in Pasadena, and you have at least $75 to drop on the cheap seats. Get up to well over $100 if you want to actually see anything. That has Morgan Fairchild as Baroness Hardup. So it, maybe it's creating its own tradition. <laughs> I can't, as I say, I can't navigate the site properly, so I can't work out if it's a full-blown, dim, ugly sisters are men panto. So technology has thwarted me. But there is this hashtag on Facebook, I presume also on Twitter, American Panto. See what else is out there. But the one I have a more direct experience of, because it was here in good old Orange County, was at the Disney California Adventure theme park. See, it's not just Disneyland. It became Disneyland Resort. Disneyland is one theme park. Directly across from it is another theme park called Disney California Adventure. Originally an infamous bomb of a theme park had to be significantly remodeled. They spent more remodeling the park than they did building it. In Disney California Adventure, there's a street that's meant to look like a street in Hollywood. At the end of this street is the front of a theatre with doors that don't open. You can't go in those doors. Round the side is how you get into the theatre. And there is a full-size theatre. I would say that it has possibly the same capacity as the Alhambra Bradford. So that's my metric for measuring theatres. And they used to have a show, Aladdin, a musical spectacular. Based on the whatever year it came out, Disney animation of Aladdin, with Robin Williams as the genie. And I'm sorry, Birdie, this was set in the Middle East. They ditched the whole China thing. I think it is actually a Middle Eastern story that's told about China, which is why the central character, who's supposed to be Chinese, has a name like Aladdin. Take that issue up with history. I think it's in the 1001 Nights, that story. Fortunately... Somebody snuck a camera into this theatre, put it up on YouTube, and Gary was able to watch it. And I said, look at this. This is proof of concept for American Pantomime. It's not just the fact that it's Aladdin. It's theatrical, and the effects are theatrical. We don't have some screen coming down, flinging holograms onto it. The first thing you see is a puppet of a camel, and you see the puppeteer standing behind it. We have a little bit of audience participation, there are a couple of points when the fourth wall is broken, or the proscenium wall is broken. Aladdin actually has to get the audience to shout out to tell him to rub the lamp. So unfortunately that show has closed now, otherwise we could have got Rob here, and he would have got Aladdin told what to do. Aladdin is also played by a boy. But Gary, you saw it, you agree with me, yes? This is an American panto. Yes, it is. For all intents and purposes, it is very clearly a pantomime and it's got all the little bits and pieces. It's got the comedic elements. It's got like the Louis musical numbers and what have you. It's got a little bit of audience participation. Yes, no, it definitely Reference is. Reference comedy. The genie's lines. The genie is taking the place of the dame and of buttons. Genie is the clown character and the genie script is regularly updated. So much so that uh, if we really thought about it, we could tell you roughly when that performance happened simply by the references the genie's making. There's a bit where it comes down this lit up staircase and goes, Hey, Madonna, this is how you walk down some stairs. Well, when did Brian Williams leave NBC Nightly News? Because they're making references oh, to that. Oh, you liked so. that joke? You're a bigger liar than Brian Williams. <laughs> so it's only, I think it's only within the last two years then. 
Probably 2015, I think that was. Yeah, well, it closed earlier this year, after 13 years. Okay, I know it's more of a captive audience. It's not like 13 years on Broadway, but still, people must have been going to see it. The, the numbers must have been good enough for that to last. Being replaced with a Frozen show, which I haven't seen. I want to put another little idea to you. Saying the Americans, they wouldn't go for Panto. Wrestling. Wrestling has been referred to many a time as a sporting pantomime. And it does also trade quite heavily, and still does, despite what some people in the business would sort of make out these days. It still trades quite heavily on good versus evil, heel versus face. And yeah, that's pantomime. But no, I think pantomime does exist in the US, but probably around about the same level as baseball exists in the UK. Yeah, it's like the ice hockey, basketball, that kind of thing. Yeah, well, that's good to know. That's good to know. And... I think you did actually look into possibly going to see one this year, but you were a bit taken aback by the ticket prices, same as Squiddy was. Yeah, I, I'm not laying down 75 clams for a seat at the back of the circle. Maybe I'll save up. Maybe next year I'll check out, see what Lithgow Family Panto are doing. If you get out to the Lambra, maybe I'll get out to one of the theatres around here doing a Panto and we can compare notes. Maybe we should do a GoFundMe or a Kickstarter. <laughs> Okay, we have another message here, and it's from George, George Grimwood of Podnose fame. I went to drama school, as did my sister, who was four years older than me, so she featured in numerous panto seasons at the Churchill Theatre in Bromley. I inadvertently ended up hanging out at the stage door while waiting for my sister to finish rehearsals, and by extension, I would often end up going on stage during performances as a kid on the evening who would join in awkwardly with a sing-along towards the end of the show. Throughout the years, I sang on stage with George Sewell, Jimmy Tarbuck, John Inman, Paul Shane, the Chuckle Brothers, and Ronnie Corbett. Everyone was very friendly and kept the appropriate festive spirit high. Being constantly surrounded by young, attractive female dancers almost certainly led to me having a particular type, to this day in fact. Throughout the years, my mother designed many of the costumes and helped out in part with the set design too. My memories of that time are from an outside perspective in many respects, as it was more of an environment my sister and mother would soak up, but the times in which I dipped my toes into that panto pond are fondly associated with the smell of sweat and paint, the glitter of a hundred gorgeous women, and the kindness of a few light entertainers from times past. Also, my mother accidentally slammed a door in Bonnie Langford's big face. Well, thank you very much for that, George. You'll have noticed, by the way, Tilt, that I actually withheld that last line from your document. Is Arsenic and Old Lace a pantomime? Not that I'm aware, no. Oh, because I once went to see Arsenic and Old Lace at the Alhambra Theatre, and who was in the seat in front of me? It wasn't wasn't Doctor Who companion herself, Bonnie Langford, was it by any chance? It was indeed, yes, because I think her husband was in as a policeman. Okay, we have a message from Bean as a Carrot. We've got a heavy antipodean thread running through the whole podcast, really. So, Bean writes, Hello! I'd never seen a panto before I came to the UK, so I have no memories at all. It really isn't an Australian thing. Obviously, I was aware of the concept from the goodies and other British shows. When I first came to London, I was cast in an amateur panto, which was loads of fun. But the only panto I've paid money to see was in Wimbledon about five years ago and had Dame Edna as the fairy godmother, which meant there were two drag characters in the show, which was weird because Humphreys refused to play to the kids and did lots of adult stuff that mystified and bored them. All the adults who came to see it howled with laughter, though. So that's curious that there were two drag characters. I'm wondering who the Dame Dame was. Bean there confirming Squiddy's comments earlier on about how Bean will go to see Barry Humphreys anywhere and everywhere. But thank you very much, Bean, for that. 
and Merry Christmas, Happy New Year to yourself, and to Ark the Purists as well. Now, just to mention a couple of people who did send us nice little Christmas greetings, but unfortunately they couldn't really partake in the whole panto spirit. For example, Jerry Phillips of Cinema Limbo. He noted, I have never seen a single pantomime in any form or medium. Hopeless helps. Well, it does because it means that some people haven't seen pantos and we should acknowledge that fact. So thank you for that, Jeremy. Merry Christmas to yourself. Also, Merry Christmas to Ian. Till, do you want to describe what Ian actually sent us? He sent us a picture of the Crankies and John Barrowman. I've forgotten his name. And John Barrowman is going to lick Jeanette's face and has mistaken Jeanette's head for a chupa chop. Should also point out that Jeanette Cranky is holding a ship's wheel and not anything else. It's just the way the photo has been framed that makes it look suspicious. Now, he adds there is nothing more that he can add to this in terms of Panto because I think that he feels that that is the the apex and that Panto probably has peaked at that point and can never ever return to those heights. Now, what we might do is we might actually tweet this photograph out. Okay, so thank you very much indeed for that, Ian. And yes, thank you indeed to everybody who contributed for this Pantocast, that's what we'll now call it. And we hope that you're all going to enjoy pantomimes this Christmas. Because why ever not? And I'm saying that as somebody who's got about half a dozen of them on his doorstep and I'm not going to any of them. But anyway, our final Christmas message, we're going to return to Birdie. Now she set her panto rules earlier on and now she's got her memories of pantomime itself. So Birdie writes, My TV memories of Panto are very slight and mainly seem to revolve around Anita Harris, who I may have mentioned my mother had an unreasonable dislike of. Your mother's not the only one. I know several people who get the red mist at the mention of Anita Harris's name. Buddy adds, maybe I actually saw her in 1973. I've only seen one professional Panto. For some reason, me and my mate decided we'd go and see the Panto at the King's Theatre in Southsea one year. We would have been. Hey, it's the second time! We would have been about 19 or 20, I think. There were no stars, it was Cinderella and the Ugly Sisters. Well, it was a flagrant breach of Rule 6. Oh, it was dire. At one point, a lady in the audience enunciated very clearly to the said sisters, We cannot hear you! Well, we can hear you either, he spat back. That's not professional. Despite that, I saw a lot of panto when I was younger because my mum and dad were involved in amateur dramatics. When my dad and his friend Ron, who wrote the pantos for the group, played the Ugly Sisters, they definitely were men dressed as women. And if you want to hear all about men dressed as women, particularly in 1972, then have a look in the Jaffa Cakes archive. That was me saying that, not Birdie. Oh yes, they wore high heels and fishnet stockings, but the fishnets were pulled on over their socks. Dad wasn't a tall man, so he also got to play a giant, see Rule 4, complete with a massive throne that he had made, as he was also the stage manager. I had my moment in the sun as the back half of a cow, as the back half of a horse, and, most memorably, as the back half of a Chinese dog. In Aladdin, see Rule 2. Back half of a Chinese dog. Was that King Crimson album? These are very naff office boy jokes, aren't they? It's really just one step up from somebody going, that'd be a good name for a band. I am so sorry. Memorable because the Chinese dog costume was actually the previous year's horse costume covered in six-inch long strips of material that I cut out and sewed on by hand. What about my mum, I hear you ask? Well, naturally, she was a wardrobe mistress, and she and her friend Marjorie would usually be the fairy godmothers. They were a pretty good double act. They also did concert party-type shows, performing parodies, also written by Ron, but with the occasional oddity, like Little Red Wing, the original source for the tune of 
The Moon Shines Bright on Charlie Chaplin. Their solo acts were light operatic material for Marjorie, e.g. Villia from The Merry Widow, while Mum did Vesta Victoria numbers like It's Alright in the Summertime. Think Sheila Stiefel doing Popsy Wopsy. She also adds, I just did a search on panto playbills from the 80s and came up with this. Now this is fabulous because this is a picture of a poster for the London Palladium pantomime and we don't have a precise year for this but I've actually sent this to Squiddy and he's fairly sure that this is one that he's seen and could well be the one that he was talking about in his message himself. So here is now, how's this for a cast? Right, here we go. Headlining, Cannon and Ball. Marty Webb, John Inman, Derek Griffiths, Cheryl Baker, Barbara Windsor, Peter Howitt, and Rod Holland Emu, and it's produced by Michael Hurl. Now that is a panto. Now, as Birdie says, what a lineup, but not a panto. Babes in the Wood, see? I was quite impressed, and then you got up to Michael Hurl, and my impressed level went through the roof. It's quite something, isn't it? I mean, if you've grown up seeing pantos at the Palladium, then can, can you look at pantos in the provinces from that point onwards? Can you look at them as different or are they always going to seem slightly more cheap and cheerful compared to something like that? It'd just be a different experience. I can imagine that in some ways, and maybe it's me projecting my own experience, the more cheap and cheerful makes you feel a little bit more in touch with the long history. A Palladium pantomime gives you a connection to the history of light entertainment in Britain, but maybe seeing one, and I, I'm, I mean, here I'm counting the Alhambra out, thinking it's a really small theatre, you would probably get some sense, some little odd feeling that the old rules are still being held to, even when they don't make sense. Here's the thing that gets me, I've been looking at the posters for the Bradford pantomimes, particularly the ones with Billy Pierce, and they keep mentioning amazing 3D effects. Cue some wag at the back saying theatre itself is a 3D effect, but I really wonder what those are. It's an evolving genre, but part of me likes to think that there are still village halls where the male lead is a woman in coloured tights and a short tunic. Body also sent us as well uh, a lovely little link to pantomimes on television over the years. Thank you very much indeed for all that, Buddy, and very Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to yourself in the summertime, of course, where it will be, where you are. Now, let's conclude on that, Till, because let's talk about pantomime on television, because normally on Jaffa Case we're talking about TV or film. So we watched Aladdin from 1966, Arthur Askey, Roy Castle, and in comparison to that Palladium panto, that was really it for sort of recognisable names. So it was, I suppose, in a way, it was closer to your average pantomime across the United Kingdom, where you've got two big names and then you've got supporting cast of actors. And that was television cameras in a theatre. We watched a bit of the 1984 children's BBC, Aladdin and the Forty Thieves. Now, to give you an idea of how well we took to this, I never got as far as the bit with the Forty Thieves. (laughs) (laughs) That was all happening in a television studio. It was wonderful to see... Edward the Changes Brayshaw as Abenaza, but it felt very patronising. It felt a bit desultory. So, oh, we'll just get everybody in the children's department and that'll do. There didn't seem to be that much energy. Everybody was doing their bit. But we did have Sarah Green as principal boy and Jan Francis as the female lead. 
don't know what her connection was, but you know, generally it was like play away, Blue Peter, Rent a Ghost. I imagine we got the pantomime horse from Rent a Ghost at some point, but being in a TV studio just deadened it. It did, and thing I really enjoyed that Aladdin from '66, and part of it is is that you're watching Arthur Askey and Roy Castle at work, and obviously I never got to see all of them in in theater itself it'd be really really nice to see some more pantomimes from that era because from the link that birdie sends us and we'll tweet that out as well there's quite a few pantomimes that appeared on bbc one and on my tv in that era on christmas day and then yeah you start to then get into the 1980s you start to get television pantomimes now for a lot of people i suppose if you say pantomimes and television a lot of people are going to think of those simon nye pantomimes from the turn of the millennium and again, they were on stage, so they weren't in a studio, they were on stage, but they also were not necessarily pantomimes that were touring. So this was staged for television in a theatre. And I do remember hearing some people sort of, usually sort of actors, and they'd be like complaining in like the stage and places like that, that they were getting people who weren't really sort of pantomime stars, people like Paul Merton, for example. And they were saying... This is not right, you know. This, this like you know, experienced professionals been doing this 20, 30 years. You know why not? Why aren't we having a crack at this? And I suppose from the point of view that that they are polished professionals at pantomime, that's fair enough. But also, this is not necessarily something that's supposed to take the place of going to see a local pantomime. This is a pantomime that's been produced for television, so it's going to use television faces for it. And I don't imagine that too many people would have passed up the opportunity to go to the local pantomime if they were intending to in the first place because there was one on ITV that Christmas. It, it doesn't sound right somehow. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I think that they're, they're two different things or distinct things. Yeah, exactly. It's audience participation. One quick thing to end on. Actually, a couple of quick things. I did briefly mention earlier seeing Max Boyce in Jack and the Beanstalk. I would just like to mention that one of the big songs was Up That Beanstalk, I Will Go, Are You With Me, Yes or No? By the halfway point of that pantomime, those children would have followed Max Boyce to the gates of hell. He really had won them over as the greatest hero of all history. No faulting Max Boyce for energy. And in many productions, large or small, there will come a point at which the good guys have the bad guy at their mercy. They will turn to the audience and say, what shall we do with him? And then for some reason show surprise when the children all shout, <laughs> and then they have to go no we'll just put him in jail what did you think was going to happen they wouldn't have liked it though if he'd done it if he'd just taken a big meat cleaver and said right okay I'll start with the head and then thousand pieces later on he starts dishing them out to the audience you will get wet on this ride front row <laughs> <laughs> Sam Peck and Pa's babes in the wood oh don't give Quentin Tarantino ideas you'll probably do it one last thought on Panto. This is something that I mentioned to Squiddy the other day when we were messaging each other back and forward about the, the recording. It's a real shame that there isn't more material. I mean, you mentioned that 1982 documentary, for example. It's a real shame there isn't more recorded material showing the great Panto stars performing at the theatres. Now, I can understand why this is, because... Even today, you don't tend to see a lot of theatre productions on television or even on DVD. And I suspect that the reason for that is because the theatre companies themselves want to preserve the magic of going to see it 
they don't necessarily want people to be able to tune in to say something like, I don't know, Wicked in the musical. They don't want people to be able to tune in and see that on ITV one evening and then just carry on running it each and every night in the theatre because that, that could potentially hurt the, the ticket sales. But at the same time, you remember the, the recording that they made of Morecambe and Wise on stage in Croydon in 1973. That's not a pantomime, of course. But that recording was not necessarily intended to be shown. That was really a recording that was made to preserve a copy of their stage act. And it's only latterly, it's only in recent years, that that became available on video and eventually ended up on TV. Now, it's a real shame that we don't have recordings, even just for posterity, even if it was a single camera, the same as that business that you showed me from the States, of some of the greats doing the, the, the bits and pieces back in the day. And here's a daft idea. I don't know... Technologically, I know this could work. I know exactly how it could be done, but I don't know if the companies themselves would do it and if the theatre companies themselves would want to do it. But why not have, say, okay, even if it's just a Palladium pantomime, why not have that available as a pay-per-view event on satellite or cable TV? So you pay the same price as you would do for a ticket to the show. And if they wanted to, you can even black it out by postcode. So if you're in the vicinity of, let's say it's a Palladium or anywhere else, if you're in the vicinity of that theatre, it's not going to be available to you. You've got to go and see it. But otherwise, you can buy a ticket to see it on the television. Do you think that that would be something that the public would go for, enough to make it economically viable? And also, do you think that the theatre companies themselves would be willing to, to do that? I think theatre companies in other towns might protest, rightly or wrongly. They might see it as a small threat. Yeah, I suspect you're right. It's not something that you get very often. I mean, you do get DVDs, for example, sometimes of musicals, but they tend to be released after they've finished the run. And I suppose the problem with pantomime is that you're going to get the same stories and to an extent, perhaps even the same routines and the same lines adapted each and every year for that year's pantomime. So... Yeah, I guess that it's something that's not likely to happen. But it would be nice because there's going to be people in areas, perhaps, say, rural areas and what have you, that don't really have the opportunity to see any of the big names in pantomime. Okay, Operation 2017. One of us, and I think it's more likely to be myself, one of us is going to see Billy Pierce in pantomime and we'll get a recording of him, even if he's just saying hello, to prove that we did it and then he'll be on the podcast next year. How's that? I think that's a very good idea. I also reserve the right to conduct a telephone interview with him if it's not possible to actually go and see him in person. So, in the meantime, thank you, first of all, to everybody who contributed to this edition of Jaffa Cakes. Once again, season's greetings to everyone. And to everybody who's listened to the podcast this year and who was listening to Sitcom Club, and even if you just heard the Greenberg Experiment the other day, maybe this is the first time you've ever heard Jaffa Cakes. Thank you very much indeed for tuning in. Please stick with us. Stick with Podnose in 2017. There'll be all manner of things going on there. Onwards and upwards to the top, as they say. The toppermost of the poppermost. Next year, we're going to get some rock and roll into Jaffa Cakes. In the meantime, if you've got anything at all for us, you can tweet us at Jaffa's for Proust. You can find us on Facebook and you can email us at feedback at sitcomclub.com. I've been Gary. Tell who have you been? I've been myself and Feliz Navidad. And this has been... Handsome for Proust.